Now, dear ones, as we begin here again in Matthew, I want you to think about how one of the greatest tragedies in history, really in the history of the world, was the destruction of the Davidic kingdom because of sin. And I want you to remember that in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah 10, 33 through 34, God likened the Davidic kingdom with its long line of kings as a mighty tree. But sadly, because of sin and because of unbelief, that tree was chopped down by God, and the Israelites were brought into Babylonian captivity. And I want us to think for just a moment what it must have been to be an Israelite living in that day. You're brought away from your homeland, you're in captivity, and all of the promises of God seem to be in jeopardy. But dear ones, in the prophets, God promised that one day he would reestablish the tree of David by bringing in the new branch. And this branch would be a king and a kingdom that God had always desired. Today, dear brothers and sisters, we're going to learn that that branch is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who will establish the kingdom of David. Now, I want you to recall that earlier in chapter 2, we had this angel from the Lord that had alerted Joseph that it was time to leave Israel and flee to Egypt. Now we see the reverse. The angel allows Joseph to know that it's safe to return to Israel. And so that's where we pick it up here in Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Matthew records this. He says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Dear ones, one of the things that Matthew wants us to see, again, is this motif of the exodus. There is a new exodus occurring as Jesus Christ now, the true son, is being brought out of Egypt. And I want you to remember, again, this angel had warned Joseph to flee back in Matthew 2.13, Well, now he is alerting Joseph to know that it's time to return to Israel. Notice in verse 20, the angel gives us those words highlighted in red, the ultimate reason why it's safe to return. He says, for those who sought the child's life are dead. That's the reason it was safe for him to go back. One thing I want to point out, I'll pull up my pointer here at this time. Usually I screw this up somehow, but can you see my pointer? Oh yeah, there it is. I want you to notice the plural, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And yet what's being singled out in the beginning of verse 19 is that Herod alone died. So why does Matthew now switch to the plural? Well, I think it's safe to say that there were many men who surrounded Herod, and they would have done his bidding. But when Herod died, of course, they were defanged. They no longer had their power. But there may be also an illusion that Matthew intends for us to see. And I want you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, verse 19. This may be another reason why Matthew, almost word for word here, agrees with the Septuagint, again, of Exodus chapter 4, verse 19. Now, as you're turning to Exodus four nineteen, I want you to remember the parallel is that Moses, remember he had killed a an Egyptian man who was mistreating a Hebrew slave, and he had to flee from Pharaoh. Pharaoh wanted to kill him. So we have this wicked king, Pharaoh, who wants to murder Moses. 
there was a wicked king, Herod, who wants to murder Jesus. And so this is one of the ways that Matthew shows us that Jesus is a new Moses, in a sense, and there's a new Exodus. Notice notice what it says here in Exodus 4.19. It says, Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. You see, again, it was only Pharaoh who died, but there's the plural. In fact, it's almost word for word, the Septuagint and also Matthew 2.20. Again, one of the things you're going to see throughout the book of Matthew is Matthew really does intend for us to see that Jesus is like a new Moses, and there's a brand new Exodus. And especially as we proceed into Matthew's chapter 3 and 4, it's very important because there, Matthew is going to depict Jesus as the faithful son Israel never was. Israel went into the wilderness in their exodus for 40 years and failed. We're going to find that Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he succeeds. Why? He's the faithful son. That's one of the things Matthew is showing us. Now, we find out here in verses 22 through 23 why providentially Joseph and his family settle in Nazareth rather than Bethlehem. It says, but when he heard that Archelaus, that would have been Joseph, by the way, he heard this, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. I want you to notice here that Joseph learns, that's Jesus' earthly father, he learns that Archelaus is reigning over Judea. And this is a problem. Remember, Archelaus is one of the sons of Herod. Herod dies, and what the Romans do is they place three of Herod's sons in place of the territory that Herod had once reigned alone. So Archelaus, he is the king over the area of Judea. You have another one, Herod Antipas. Remember, he's the rascal that ends up murdering John the Baptist. Jesus has a lot of dealings with him. He reigns over the region of Galilee. And then you had the Herod Philip was up by Caesarea Philippi. But this Archelaus, he was the nastiest of the three sons. In fact, Flavius Josephus records in his Antiquities that at the inauguration of Archelaus' reign, he murdered some 3,000 Passover celebrants. So this was not a good man. In fact, he ends up being rejected even by the Romans later on. Well, here, this explains why Joseph doesn't want to settle in Bethlehem, but instead, therefore, goes to Galilee. Now, notice in the underlines, that's why he left for the regions of Galilee. Why is that important for our reading of the book of Matthew? Because this is going to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. Remember, Isaiah 9 predicts that when the Messiah begins his ministry, where is he going to begin it? In Galilee. So providentially, we are learning how it is that Jesus went from Judea in Bethlehem and ended up beginning his ministry in Galilee. Remember those words in Isaiah 9, 1 through 2? Zebulun and Naphtali, those who live in the Galilee of the Gentiles, you have sat in darkness, but you will see a great light. That's going to be fulfilled, we see, in Matthew 4.14. This explains why providentially God brought Jesus to Galilee so that he would begin his ministry as the Messiah, just as foretold some 700 years in advance in Isaiah chapter 9. 
Now, of all of the cities that could be in Galilee, in verse 23, Matthew shows us which city. Notice it says, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Now, I want you to notice in the box, I put the prophets plural in that box because normally when Matthew cites an Old Testament prophecy, he will either cite the, the actual author like Jeremiah, Isaiah, etc., or he will cite the verse. But here he uses the prophets plural. And one of the reasons that's important is when you look to the Old Testament, nowhere will you find a single verse that says the Messiah is going to be called a Nazarene. And so there has to be a plurality of what the prophets were saying regarding the idea of being a Nazarene. Now, remember, I've talked about three different ways the New Testament writers understood Old Testament prophecy. The first is what we call a direct prophecy. They're the most straightforward. Uh, A good example of a direct prophecy, again, is Micah 5.2. It predicted some 700 years in advance, Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Voila. By the way, it never says voila in the Bible. I'm adding that. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. That's a direct prophecy. But the most common type of prophecy is what's called a typological prophecy. And that's where there is a type or a pattern set in the old, fulfilled by Jesus Christ in the new. Okay? Well, the third kind of prophecy is that which is called the application of Old Testament words. And I believe that that is what's going on here with the term Nazarene. So, as we endeavor to interpret this prophecy, I think we must understand what Matthew intends for us to see behind the term Nazarene. What did Matthew see in the terms Nazarene or Nazareth that allowed him to say that this was fulfilled in Jesus' day? Now, there have been three main possibilities of interpretation over the years that Christian scholars have had, and I'll show you all three of them, and I'll show you which one I favor. The first one is that perhaps Nazareth is a playoff of Nazarite, the idea of Jesus having a Nazarite-like vow so that he would be much like Samson. Samson, the judge, was a champion over Israel's enemies. Those who hold to this view would say Jesus is the ultimate champion over Israel's enemies. Now, there are big problems with this view. To me, they're so overwhelming, I would exclude this view. And that is Jesus simply never took upon himself the Nazarite vow. Remember, there are three elements to the Nazarite vow. The first thing is you could never put a razor to your hair and cut your hair. By the way, I've been away from a barber a a while during COVID. I'm starting to feel maybe like a Nazarite, but I'm going to get back. But yes, you couldn't cut your hair. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that Jesus never cut his hair. Okay, now that might be an argument from silence, but think about this. The second thing a Nazarite had to do is they had to refrain from drinking of the fruit of the vine. Yet Jesus clearly drank of the fruit of the vine. He drank wine. The third thing the Nazarite vowed not to do was to be in the presence of a dead body. And yet Jesus raised the dead. And so for those reasons, I don't think it's likely that the Nazarite view is in mind. In fact, let me cite you a verse where Jesus himself says that he drank wine. Matthew eleven eighteen through 19. Jesus here is defending both his ministry and John the Baptist. He said, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. 
the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You can't win either way with the unbelievers, can you? But the point is, Jesus certainly attests to the fact that he did drink. So he didn't take the Nazarite vow. Now, what about the second view? The second view maintains that what Matthew intends for us to see in the prophets was this notion that the Messiah would be despised. In fact, remember, in Isaiah 53, 3, it did predict that he would be despised and forsaken. Now, you might ask yourself, what in the world, Eric, does that have to do with Nazarene? Well, nobody's quite sure, but one passage that comes to mind is, do you remember in John 1:46, the apostles believe that they have found the Messiah, and they did, and they come to Nathaniel, and in John 1:46, they say, hey, I'm paraphrasing, we found the Messiah. Nathaniel asks, where did you find him? They say, Nazareth. Do you remember Nathaniel's response? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Perhaps Nazareth was used as a pejorative, perhaps because of its diminutive size or what have you. And maybe that's what Matthew intended, that Jesus was foretold to be despised by the plurality of the prophets. The problem with that is the idea of being despised is in the Old Testament, but it's more in Isaiah than any other section of Scripture. And so to me, the third view has more going for it, and that is, the idea of Nazareth plays off of the root of Netzer, the Hebrew term for the branch. And the idea it was prophesied in all of the prophets, whether it was, well, not all of them, but Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, that yes, the branch of David, the Messiah, would restore the fallen tree of David, the Davidic kingdom. And by the way, this was the favorite view of both Eusebius, the church historian, and also Jerome, again, a fairly good church historian. Now, they argued, both Eusebius and Jerome, that Isaiah 11.1 1 was the source of Nazareth. So what happened was, think about the Israelites, they're in captivity in Babylon. 539 B.C., God uses the Persian Cyrus to destroy Babylon. Then what you have in the years following is you have these resettlers that come back into the land. Well, it was at that time that Nazareth was established. And both Eusebius and Jerome claim that the settlers of Nazareth took the term Netzer, the idea of the messianic branch, and I'll show you later that, from Isaiah 11.1, and that's what they named their town. So the term Netzer, notice on the screen in blue, is the root for branch, and it's found in Isaiah 11.1. So perhaps with a little twinkle in his eye, I think this is probably the view that has most going for it, Matthew records that the branch of David, the Messiah, grows up not just in any town, but Branchville, the city of the branch. And how poignant is that Jesus, the bread of life, who's born in the house of bread, isn't just raised anywhere. The branch of David is raised in Branchville. And again, it's, it's Matthew's way of showing us that all that the Old Testament predicted concerning the Messiah is found in the person and work of Jesus. That's what Matthew wants to show us. Now, let me come to a couple of application points with you here this morning. How does this apply to our lives? Well, you and I, I think, have to be centered on who Christ is. That's what this text is all about. And so, number one, 
I think we must understand the significance of the promised Davidic branch for our understanding of the Messiah. In other words, I think there are times, dear ones, that you and I just simply have to understand the biblical data. We have to understand how the Messiah is portrayed in the Old Testament. Think about how many times people today know of terms that people in Jesus' day would have no idea. Think of the term selfie. Every American knows what a selfie is, yet no one knows the branch of Yahweh. Very few. Well, I'll tell you what, I think you're going to be much more blessed knowing the idea of the branch of Yahweh than you will knowing what a selfie is. You and I should know the biblical data. That's point one. Number two, we should understand how the humble roots associated with the branch will lead to a magnificent kingdom. One of the images of the branch is it begins in an inconspicuous manner. Do you know that God's kingdom is being built right now? Right now, there's no, there's no address for it. But it's being built in an inconspicuous manner each time a person repents and believes the gospel. And so there's an inconspicuous start to the kingdom of God. But one day, the branch will be this mighty stately cedar tree. That's the image. And it'll fill the whole world. And so just as the world scoffs at you because you have an inconspicuous kingdom, one day they won't because you belong to Jesus Christ, the branch of David. The kingdom that he'll bring will be over the whole world. Okay, so I want to begin by answering this question. Where did this notion that the Messiah would be this branch, where did it originate from? I believe the branch concept originated in 2 Samuel chapter 23. Now remember in 2 Samuel 22, you have this psalm that David had written where he extols the virtues of God and how God had protected him from Saul. Well, then when you get to Psalm, excuse me, 2 Samuel 23, you see the last song David ever wrote. And I want you to turn to that. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 2 through 4. We'll start there, and then I'll put verse 5 up on the screen. 2 Samuel 23, verses 2 through 4. Again, 2 Samuel 23, 2 through 4. David, this is his song, the last one. Notice he says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Let me stop there for just a moment. That's significant. David there is claiming to be a prophet who speaks for God. Okay, now remember, just a quick aside, when you come to Pentecost, do you remember how Peter cites Psalm 1610? And that was written by King David. And remember, the point of Psalm 1610 is that God would not allow his Holy One to remain in the grave. Remember that? He would not see decay. Peter said that David knew that that wasn't about himself, but it was about the Messiah. That's Peter's claim. Now, why could Peter say that? Because David was a prophet, not only a king, but a prophet. In a real sense, therefore, a model and a foreshadowing of Christ who is a king like David, but also a prophet as well. Now, continuing in verse 3, notice what David claims. He says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. Now, stop there for just a moment. What the God of Israel is going to reveal is what a good king does. How does a good king rule? Well, the, 
the Lord revealed this to David. It says, he who rules over men righteously, that's number one. If you rule righteously, you're a good ruler. And who rules in the fear of God. Does, that, does everyone see the second point? So if you rule as a king righteously and in the fear of God, you're a good ruler. In fact, listen to what a blessing it is in verse 4. It is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. That's what a kind of a blessing a good ruler is. And then David says, notice on the screen, 2 Samuel 23, 5, truly is not my house so with God? Now stop there for a moment. That rhetorical question begs the answer, of course. Of course David is the righteous king who rules in the fear of God. But notice he continues, he says, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured. Stop there. Where did God make an unconditional everlasting covenant with David? 2 Samuel 7. There, David is going to have his throne established for how long? Forever. So notice he continues. He says, for all my salvation and all my desire, will he not indeed make it grow? Again, the obvious answer to that rhetorical question is, sure, God is going to make the Davidic kingdom grow. But does everyone see the term make it grow? That comes from the Hebrew verb, samak. Samak, it sounds like something hitting your car. Samak. You hit the bird, samak. But it means literally to grow, or another way that you could say it is to branch. And so David is talking about his kingdom growing. Will God not make it grow or branch out? And the obvious answer is yes, God is going to make the Davidic kingdom grow. Now, I want you to think about the disappointments that came. David lives around 1,000 B.C., but as you go through the line of kings of David, they progressively get worse and worse. There, there are some good ones and some bad ones. But by and large, the Davidic kings, because of unbelief and sin, lead to the destruction and the falling of the Davidic kingdom like a mighty tree. It's chopped down. The Israelites are brought into captivity. But what the prophets do in the Old Testament is they build off of what David has just said here in 2 Samuel 23, 5. Isn't God going to make it grow or branch? And so this is what brings in this idea that the Messiah is going to be the branch. He's going to be the one who establishes the Davidic kingdom. He's going to be the one who makes it grow over the entire world. He's going to be the one who reigns in righteousness and in justice. And when he reigns, no longer will there be war. The swords will be beaten to plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks, and all of the nations, they will come up to meet the Lord, and they will what? They will sing his praises. They will give him honor. And if they don't, he won't send rain upon their land. This is the kind of rule and reign that will one day come, all because of Jesus. Now, I want to show you where this builds off of then. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 4, we're going to see Isaiah promise one day, this branch, the messianic branch, will indeed come. Now, in Isaiah chapter 4, the context is looking forward to the removal of the reproach of Israel. And notice the great promise here in verse 2, Isaiah chapter 4. It says, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment 
of the survivors of Israel. Now, I want you to see here in blue, notice the term the branch. That's the noun form, samak, of the verb that we saw back in 2 Samuel 23.5. But in this instance, I think certainly the branch is a reference to what God is going to do through the Messiah, that the Messiah is going to be the branch of the Lord. And what he's going to do is he's going to bring about a beautiful and glorious kingdom. In fact, notice it's going to be for the survivors of Israel. And if you combine that with this idea that it will be in that day, I think we get the idea that this will happen in the future day of the Lord. It's referring to the millennial kingdom. In that day, the survivors of Israel will have a glorious kingdom established by the branch. So these are the prophet's way of saying, hey, the fallen nature of David's tree isn't going to be forever. God is one day going to remedy the situation through the Messiah. Now, notice Isaiah chapter 11. By the way, before I read Isaiah 11, 1, remember two verses earlier, verse, this would be Isaiah 10, 33 into Isaiah 10, 34. Then you get to Isaiah 11. The last two verses of Isaiah chapter 10 are all about the chopped Davidic tree. God chopped it down. Why? Because of their sin. Well, is that it? Should we just pack it up and go home? No longer any Davidic promises. No. Here's the great promise. How is God going to restore the situation? Isaiah 11.1, 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? That's the father of David. So this is a fancy way of saying, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of David. That's going to be the answer to the problem. And notice a branch... From his roots will bear fruit. Now, brothers and sisters, remember that according to Eusebius and Jerome, and again, good historians, they claim that Nazareth was founded by people who used this verse at its founding. In other words, they took this term branch, which here in Hebrew is netzer. It's a synonym for samak. And they used it as the basis of naming their town the place of the branch, the home of the branch, Branchville, however you want to say it. All right, so that's the idea. Now, when this branch comes, again, what is he going to do? He's going to establish the fallen tree of David. Now, notice more about this glorious passage. I couldn't fit everything on the screen, but let me show you something. Notice where it says, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And again, that's somewhat synonymous with the branch. The term shoot here, coter, has to do with this little inconspicuous twig that would come from a stump. But the idea is that it's coming from a source. And so what's being accentuated, don't glaze over, what's being accentuated in Isaiah 11.1 is the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. If you look nine verses later in Isaiah 11.10, it talks not about the shoot of David, but the root of David. The term there is shoresh. So this Messiah, whoever the branch is, is not going to be just a descendant of David, Isaiah 11.1. But Isaiah 11.10, he's going to be the source of David. Well, how can one person be a descendant of David, Isaiah 11.1, but also the source or the root of David, Isaiah 11.10? It's the God-man. He's truly God, the source of David, but he's truly man. He comes from David. Now, that was revealed earlier in Isaiah 9. 
Remember Isaiah 9, 6? This is all messianic doctrine. Brothers and sisters, you and I think so often as evangelicals that when the Old Testament prophets were giving us prophecies, that they were just haphazard predictions. No, it was greater than that. The Old Testament prophets were teaching us about the Messiah, who he would be, what he would do, where he would come from. They're giving us messianic doctrine. Isaiah 9, 6 talks about the Messiah. Remember, unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. I think I have that reversed. But remember, it says the government will be upon his shoulders, and they will call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Truly a son, truly mighty God in one person. Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah 11, 1, truly a man. Isaiah 11, 10, truly the source of David, truly God. That's what you're seeing being revealed all regarding the branch, the Netzer, who grows up not just in any town, but grows up in Branchville, the city of the branch. All right, now, as Christians, again, I think we have to be familiar with how the Old Testament portrays the Messiah in the various forms of rich imagery that it uses. I want you to see here that in Jeremiah 23, 5. Now, why is Jeremiah significant? Well, because he's a prophet living during the time of the exile. And so they would have been very concerned about how this Davidic kingdom could be restored. Well, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Now, does everyone see that term righteous branch? Again, that's our term Samak, the same term that was used back in 2 Samuel 23, 5. Same term, same term used in Isaiah 4, 2. Now, I want you to see that when this righteous branch comes, notice he's going to be a king. Does everyone see that on the screen? He's going to be a king, and what will he do as king? He will bring justice in righteousness. Now, what this means is this is going to happen in the future. Do we see righteousness and justice now on the earth? No. But one day when this branch, his kingdom, takes over the entire world, that's what you will have. Now, let me fast forward to Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen. Again, Jeremiah says, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David, there's the Messiah, to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Brothers and sisters, notice again, Justice and righteousness are going to be part and parcel to this Davidic king's rule, the Messiah's rule. Now, when is all of this going to happen? Notice the underlines. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, days are coming. Jeremiah 33, 15 says, in those days and at that time. And dear ones, normally when you see that language, sometimes you just have to look to the immediate context, but oftentimes the prophets will use that language to refer to the future day of the Lord. And so I believe the day of the Lord begins in the 70th week of Daniel. It extends into the millennial kingdom and on into the eternal states. Why? Because the day of the Lord is the time in which God finally and forever saves his people and that he forever judges his enemies. And there's stages to it. But, dear ones, when the Messiah comes, there's going to be justice and righteousness. Notice where? Peretz, there we have the land or the earth. The same term is used here. It's going to be upon the earth. Now, 
What about the amillennialist who says that the millennial kingdom is not real? We're having our millennium in the sense during the church age. Let me ask the question, is there righteousness and justice upon the world now? No. And so I think that this begs the question, will these things literally be fulfilled? Well, the promises concerning Christ's first coming were literally fulfilled. I think the promises concerning his second coming are going to be literally fulfilled. All right, now, I want to come to this image that's used in Ezekiel 17. The idea that Messiah's kingdom is likened to a mighty tree. And again, the reason I want to put this passage up is I want you to be aware of the data. Unless you are aware of the idea of the Messiah being the branch of Yahweh, this idea that Ezekiel is building off of that the the Messianic kingdom is like a tree, it really makes no sense. So I want you to notice here in the context of Ezekiel 17, there are a couple of eagles that you'll see mentioned if you read the whole passage. The first eagle is that of Nebuchadnezzar. And what Nebuchadnezzar does is he takes twigs from a mighty cedar and he plants them in Babylon. And that is the removal of the Davidic royalty from Israel to Babylon into captivity. Well, then there's another eagle, which is Egypt. And this is all, by the way, explained by Ezekiel. Well, the next eagle, this Egypt ends up drawing away Zedekiah in rebellion. And so it just brings the Davidic throne into even greater trouble. But what God promises is that one day he is going to take a little twig and he is going to build a mighty tree, the messianic kingdom that will rule over the whole world. Notice what it says, Ezekiel 17, verses 22 through 23. He says, thus says the Lord God. So this is after the eagles. This is what God is going to do. I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel, I will plant it, that it may bring forth bows and bear fruit and become a stately cedar, and birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice the reference to the sprig is actually something that's put in by the English translator. But the idea of this tender one, the idea of rack in, in Hebrew, this idea of this tender little twig, is the idea that God is going to take this tender little twig, this tiniest, most inconspicuous little tiny branch, and he's going to plant it where? Notice the mountain of Israel. Where is that? That's Jerusalem. Now, what is this little twig going to turn into, this little tiny branch of God? It's going to turn into a stately cedar. Does everyone see that? The idea that the messianic kingdom starts small and inconspicuous, but one day it's going to fill the entire earth. In fact, I think that there's good news for the Gentiles in this verse. Notice in verse 23, in the underlines, it says, and birds of every kind will rest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. You see, the Messianic kingdom is not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles too. And so it doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what class you are. And it doesn't matter what gender you are. All that matters is that you have faith in this Jesus, the branch. 
And if you believe in Jesus the branch, you will become a partaker of this glorious kingdom that will fill the entire earth. That's the great promise that we see all over the scriptures. Dear brothers and sisters, when Matthew says all of this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene, do you see that the totality of what the prophets were saying is that the branch is coming? And all the while, this Jesus comes and is born in Bethlehem, the bread of life and the house of bread. But he ends up growing up, not just anywhere, but in the city of the branch, proving again that he is the long-awaited branch of David. Now, one thing I want to come to on this last side is that every single person will one day answer to the branch. Every single human being, whether Jew or Gentile, male, male or female, needs the atonement and the forgiveness of sins that comes from the branch of Yahweh, the Messiah. And one of the places we see this idea that the branch, the Messiah, brings atonement is found in Zechariah chapter 3. So again, another place it's going to refer to the branch. Now remember in Zechariah chapter 3, it's a beautiful picture of Joshua high priest, but this high priest Joshua, who's living now in this land, has a problem because he has garments that are spoiled. They're literally dung-filled. And the idea is because they are filthy, they have to be removed by God, and he does so, and he gives them new clothes so that he can be the faithful priest that God has called him to. Well, it's in the midst of this context of the high priest Joshua being cleansed that you see this. Zechariah 3, 8 through 9. Notice what said, Zechariah records this. He says, now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, the first thing I want you to see here is that Joshua, remember his name is the same as Jesus, Yeshua. Yahweh saves. But isn't it interesting that God himself says, notice on the screen in the underline, that Joshua and his friends are a symbol. A symbol of what? I believe a symbol of what God will do ultimately through the branch, who's going to be both a king but also a priest, the high priest of the people of God. Now, what is God going to do? Well, he's going to bring in, notice he says, notice in blue, my servant, the branch. This term servant here, aveth, comes right from Isaiah 53, 11. Remember, that's where it was promised in Isaiah that my servant will justify the many. So certainly this is a reference to the Messiah. What term is used here for branch? Samak. The same term that I believe goes all the way back to 2 Samuel 23, 5. So this is a reference to the Messiah. God is going to bring in the Messiah. Now, notice verse 9. He says, for behold, the stone. Some interpreters have claimed that the stone here is the Messiah. And yes, there's a lot of evidence for that. The Messiah is often re referred to as the stone that the builders rejected, Psalm 18. He's the stone laid in Zion. And so it's possible However, think about this one with me, dear ones. In Zechariah 3, the context is all about cleaning the high priest Joshua. Would it also make sense 
that the stone would have been set before Joshua, the Messiah? I think what makes more sense is that this stone is referring to one of the stones that would have been on the breastpiece of the high priest. Remember, God has already cleansed his garments, but now he's giving him a new stone. And you might say to yourself, wait a minute, Eric, come on. The original high priest, he had 12 stones, all of the 12 tribes of Israel. Oh, yes, that's true. But after the exile, you didn't have 12 tribes. You had one. You had one, Judah, from where the Messiah comes. That's the idea. And so the idea is that there's going to be a reestablishment of the priesthood. But in the person and work of the branch, you have both the king like David and the priest in the order of Melchizedek. And notice the great promise. What is he going to do? Notice in blue, God is going to remove the iniquity of that land in one day. There's some debate as to whether that one day happened at Jesus' first coming or does it happen at his second coming? And I don't mean to sound postmodern on you, but yes. Think of it this way. In one day, Jesus at his first coming removes the sins of the people. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But did Israel experience that? No, but they will at the second coming when the Lord will bring them to faith in the Messiah and they will mourn for the one whom they'd pierced as one mourns for an only child. And in one day, the Lord will remove the sins en masse, even of the nation of Israel. What this means is two different things, I think, to both unbelievers and believers. All of you who have trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you have atonement. But what about those who may be here or may be listening over the Internet or watching that don't know this branch of Yahweh? Today, what you must know is that unless you have atonement that comes from the Messiah, you'll never be a partaker of his kingdom. You see, the Bible reveals very bad news. And that's why the good news of the gospel shines in light of that bad news. The bad news is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see that in Romans 3.23. And the news gets even worse when we consider the fact that the wages of our sin is death. Not just separation of body and soul at physical death, but one day an ultimate separation from God in the lake of fire. Now, I can't think of any worse news than that. But the Bible teaches it. In fact, Jesus himself teaches hell, Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear he who can destroy the body, but he who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Yes, if someone disagrees with the doctrine of hell, their disagreement was, is with Jesus, the branch of Yahweh. Now, why is it important to know the bad news? Because that's why the good news shines. The good news is that God would one day bring forth his son, the son who existed as God and with the other members of the Trinity with God for all eternity. At a point in history, he humbled himself and became a man through the virgin birth. And he did so so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could. So that by faith in Christ, the branch of Yahweh, his righteousness could be credited to our account. But Jesus didn't come just to live the perfect life. He came to die a substitutionary death. Jesus, the just, on behalf of us, the unjust, in order that we might be brought to God. The proof that Jesus took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath on behalf of his people 
was proven by the fact that on the third day after his death, he was bodily raised from the dead. It proves all of his claims. When Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except by him, we can know it for sure why he was raised from the dead. This same Jesus is ascended to the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of God, fulfilling Psalm 110.1. From where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom as the branch. What must we do? Well, Jesus commands every single person in Mark 1.15 to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance has to do with the change of mind and a turn of direction, turning from idolatry and turning to God on his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Today, if you'll trust upon the branch of Yahweh, Jesus of Nazareth, the authority of Scripture says to you that you have the forgiveness of sins, and you'll one day be a partaker of this glorious kingdom. Now, brothers and sisters, what about you? How does this apply to you as you're going out the door? Well, the first thing I would say to you as you're going out the door is that your faith is well-placed in Jesus Christ. Because in the person and work of Jesus, he fulfills all that the Old Testament had predicted about the Messiah. Again, Jesus was the bread of life. So says Jesus. Where is he born? The house of bread, Bethlehem. He's buried in the ground on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he's raised on the Feast of Firstfruits. He is the Passover lamb from Exodus 12. In fact, people were to select the Passover lamb on the 10th day of Nisan. What day does he come into Jerusalem? The 10th day of Nisan, he comes in on lamb selection day. What day was he crucified? On the day that you would crucify or slaughter the Passover lamb. This Jesus also grew up not just anywhere, but the branch of Yahweh grew up in the city of the branch. That's what it means to you, that your faith is well-placed because Jesus fulfills all of the predictions of the Old Testament. The one more thing I want to relay to you is that I feel the pressure like a lot of you do in the world today. You can see lawlessness on the rise. And one of the frustrations that I have had, and I know you share, is that ironically the people of God who have wisdom that comes from the Scriptures were never listened to. We're the ones who were scoffed and mocked. But, dear ones, I want you to understand the imagery of the branch. Remember, it's an inconspicuous start. God said he's going to take a little tender twig. It's not that he's going to take a huge mass of tree. He takes a little tender twig, and he brings about the whole messianic kingdom. Brothers and sisters, just as you and I are not listened to now, we have an inconspicuous start, as it were. One day when the branch returns, you and I will not be inconspicuous anymore. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that we will rule over the nations and even the angels, all because of the person and work of the branch. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that you're faithful, that you brought forward the Davidic branch at the right time according to your sovereign plan. We pray, Heavenly Father, that this material would sink deep in our soul and give us the perseverance on the dark days that our faith is well trusted, that all who trust upon this stone that you've laid in Zion, the branch of David, will never be disappointed. I pray for my dear brothers and sisters as they go through trials, as they go through sicknesses and deal with people who are ailing. I pray, Heavenly Father, you give them stamina 
and strength and perseverance, letting them know that their faith is well-placed. I also pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us the sense that one day this inconspicuous kingdom will be the, the kingdom that rules over the world, that you would give us that faith and trust that we would live godly lives here and now. I pray, Heavenly Father, also that you would give us the words to our neighbors, that you put the gospel upon our lips in boldness to our neighbors, our loved ones, our coworkers who don't know you, so that they also can come to faith in the branch, the Messiah, and be partakers of this glorious kingdom when it comes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.